The following exhortation was delivered on December 20th, 2020 at Rockbridge Presbyterian Church, a congregation of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Clinton, South Carolina. Mr. Zachary Groff, ministerial assistant at Antioch Presbyterian Church in Woodruff, South Carolina, gave this message entitled, The Birth of Jesus Christ Our Lord, on Luke 2, 1-7. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. In 1965, Columbia Broadcasting System, otherwise known as CBS, aired the Peanuts Christmas special entitled A Charlie Brown Christmas for the First Time. With a runtime of 25 minutes and 25 seconds, it has over the last 55 years become a staple of broadcast television, running annually each December on one of the major broadcast television networks. When CBS first approached Charles Schultz, the creator of the cartoon strip featuring Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, Lucy, and the Peanuts gang, he gave the producers one condition, that the special be about something. Otherwise, he said, why bother? 55 years on, could you tell me what a Charlie Brown Christmas is about? If you aren't able to tell me what that famous television program is all about, that's quite all right. (laughs) Of much greater significance for the Christian is that you rightly understand and are able to articulate what Christ's birth is all about. And so over 2,000 years on, could you tell me what the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about? The New Testament gives us two accounts of Christ's birth. We've looked at both of them today. One in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, extending into the second chapter, and one in the second chapter of Luke's gospel right here. And I suspect that both accounts are quite familiar to you. And this morning, we might be tempted to gloss over these details in Luke's familiar narrative without paying much attention to what it's actually about. But if you're going to receive any spiritual good from the reading and the hearing of God's word this morning, we must, all of us and each of us, give heed to what the evangelist tells us about Christ's birth here in Luke 2, particularly verses 1 through 7. Otherwise, we might ask, why bother? Why bother? So what I will seek to present to you today is the cosmic significance of Christ's humble birth in Bethlehem, and what demands that makes on your life as those who identify with Christ. In fact, the passage shows us this, the importance and drama of Jesus Christ's birth demand a response of faith-filled praise. Again, the importance and drama of the Lord Jesus Christ's birth demand a response of faith-filled praise. Toward that end, we will consider the text under two headings. First, we will consider the importance of Christ's birth presented in verses 1 through 5. And then, having seen the importance of Christ's birth, we will then consider the drama of Christ's birth presented in verses 6 and 7. With the spotlight shining then on these first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, we are prepared to consider what the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. Well, our passage this morning begins with these stately words. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And if we were to stop at this point, 
which is those few simple, even mundane words, the importance of Christ's birth would be plainly seen in the connection Luke draws between it and the reign of Julius Caesar's heir, Caesar Augustus, the emperor who would usher in the Pax Romana, the 400-year peace of the Roman Empire. But Luke does not stop with Caesar. To stop with Caesar would in fact mask the true significance of Jesus Christ's birth. Because while the Jews of first century Palestine were certainly subject to Roman rule, the Romans were subject to the rule of the Lord, the God of Israel. So Luke records for us the details of the birth of the Prince of Peace. As we consider the importance of Christ's birth in verses 1 through 5, then, we will first examine the important biographical details that Luke provides. Then we will consider the spiritual importance of Christ's coming. So as an exacting biographer and historian, directly inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke wrote his account of Christ's birth with the prophecies of the Old Testament at the forefront of his mind. Having already recorded the details of the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary of God's plans for Jesus' birth in chapter 1, Luke now proceeds to give the account of Christ's birth in chapter 2. However, there's a major problem. In chapter 1, verse 26, we read that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. But according to the prophet Micah, In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which we read in our responsive reading from Matthew chapter 2, the promised ruler in Israel, the governor of Israel, will go forth not from Nazareth or Galilee at all, far to the north of Samaria, but he will come from Bethlehem Ephrathah, otherwise known as the city of David, in the heart of the territorial holdings of the tribe of Judah, far to the south of Nazareth. So to address this problem, Luke takes great care to relay the important biographical details of Christ's birth in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. In addressing a geographical problem here then, deriving from Old Testament prophecies, Luke accomplishes twin purposes in chapter 2. The obvious purpose is this. Luke's need to tell us why Mary, Joseph, and the unborn baby Jesus relocated to the city of David just in time for the action described in verses 6 and 7, namely Mary's delivery of Jesus, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5.2. That's obvious. The less obvious purpose is Luke's setting the stage for Christ's work of redemption, which he will unfold in his gospel and then continue to expound upon in the Acts of the Apostles. In these verses, Luke is in fact developing a theme which he introduced in Gabriel's speech to Mary in chapter 1, that Christ is coming as David's descendant who will reign over the house of Jacob forever. For he will restore and, in fact, reunify the northern and southern tribes of Israel into a united kingdom of God. And this theme permeates Luke's gospel and then its sequel, the book of Acts. The restoration of Israel is the great hope of Simeon and Anna later on in chapter 2. The restoration of Israel is the reality illustrated by Christ's calling 12 apostles who then represent the 12 tribes of Israel in chapter 6. The restoration of Israel is in fact the purpose of Christ's and his disciples' journey to Jerusalem from Luke chapter 9 through Luke chapter 19. 
A crucial part of this restoration was the reunification of the north and the south, the northern and southern tribes represented by Judea, Samaria, and then Galilee, even to the far north. The parable of the Good Samaritan, I'm sure you all are well familiar with that in chapter 10, illustrates this beautifully. It is a Samaritan, a man of Samaria, of the northern tribes, that demonstrates covenant loyalty and heartfelt compassion Toward the assaulted man of Judah on the highway between Jerusalem in Judah and Jericho in Samaria. In Acts, the risen Christ then sends his apostles to Judea and Samaria. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the apostle Philip has a fruitful ministry in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts 9.31, we are told this as a summary statement of Acts 1 through 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. This is the work of Christ for which Luke is setting the stage all the way back in chapter 2. That he will come to restore a unified kingdom. Therefore, don't gloss over the biographical and historical details of verses 1 through 5. They're familiar to us. They seem even mundane like census data, but they are so important to understanding the rest of what Luke is going to do inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's setting the stage to show you something more magnificent and more wonderful than any clerical record of the reign of Caesar Augustus or of Quirinius's governorship in the ancient Roman province of Syria. These important biographical details suggest to us something of far greater spiritual significance than the why of Christ's coming. Christ came to restore his covenant community. And this has deep spiritual significance. This is important for your souls. It's important for my soul why Jesus Christ came. His kingdom, the kingdom of David, he came to restore to the abundant life found only in God the Father. In fact, Luke seems to frame all of human history as converging on this point, the birth of Christ. Even one of our more sentimentalistic uh, Christmas carols, O Little Town of Bethlehem, captures this dynamic in the beautiful line, the best line in the carol. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Whose hopes? Whose fears? Well, Luke would tell you that the hopes and fears of all the inhabited earth, of all those who yearn for deliverance from sin, from death, from hell. In Christ are fulfilled the hopes of all those who fear the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, righteous judge of mankind, and merciful redeemer of sinners. It's the hopes and fears of those who hope in God and fear the Lord God. Does this describe you this morning? Are you a God-fearer? Many of you are familiar to me. I've preached here many times now. But consider at least in a regular year, who knows what's going on in 2020, but consider across our land and churches how many are coming out of a ritual obligation or because their wives or their husbands or their moms or dads dragged them to church. Are they coming to fear the Lord? No, they're coming to check a box. Oh, I go to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. But setting them aside 
Examine yourself. Are you a God-fearer? Are your hopes founded on Christ alone for salvation? That is the challenge that Luke puts before you as he very clearly claims Christ as the purpose for Caesar's census. Indeed, Christ is the purpose of every detail of history. The grand narrative of Scripture, its golden thread woven throughout the fabric of Scripture, is that though all mankind has been alienated from God by your sin and by my sin and Father Adam, yet God from all eternity has graciously elected some to everlasting life by a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lest I fail to be abundantly clear at this point, your sins of nature, affection, thought, word, and deed have separated you from God. Mr. Murphy was talking about this in Sunday school. I came in, I interrupted his class in the last 10 minutes or so, and he said, he said, I was born with a sin nature. And he's right. Each of us were. Each of you were. We were born in Adam's sin. And that's what Christ came to save us from. Does not your conscience cry out under a weight of guilt and shame? Woe is me, the sinner. In fact, the hopes and fears of all the years of your life then must ascend to God as a plea for salvation. Save me, O Lord. If this has not been the case for you, Dear friends, I don't presume to be God knowing the state of your hearts. If this is not the case for you, it must surely ought to be today. For God is a righteous judge. He will not let sin go unpunished. So much so did he hate sin and idolatry. Consider what he did to Israel. He divided the kingdom. The very same people he delivered out of slavery in Egypt. The very apple of his eye, he said. He subjected his, this people, his covenant people, to exile in Assyria and then in Babylon before placing upon them the heavy yoke of Roman political dominance. Yes, God will find out every sin and he will judge righteously for his own glory. And we're not excluded from that. But he is, as Psalm 62 or 65 verse 2, Psalm 65 verse 2 tells us, he is the hearer of prayers. He is the one who hears prayers, the only God who hears prayers. And he is swift to send salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. As Luke will demonstrate in the remainder of his gospel and acts, Christ by word, deed, and spirit has brought restoration to Israel as a deliverer of God's people. And as the king of God's heavenly kingdom, this is the Christ whose birth we read about this morning. Does the narrative of Christ's coming thrill you then? Does the prospect of the Savior's coming into the world excite you? If it does not, dear friends, it most surely ought to. He is the Savior of sinners come into the world. Consider all that he has accomplished for you and for me, for all those who receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 12, tell us of his suffering on behalf of sinners. This familiar passage says to us, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, 
But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression, judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and that he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions. And from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we read of his glory. We see his works in chapter 53, what he's come to do. And then we see his glory, the great result of his works in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So I pose the question to you, what could be more important? What could be more significant? What could be more history-changing than this? The birth of Christ. Come to restore broken Israel for the sake of the redemption then of all humanity. There is nothing more important than this. So what kind of response is demanded then by the importance of Jesus Christ's birth? Is this not enough to elicit your faith-filled praise? That's the response God desires. That's the response God intends. That's why Christ came into the world. Luke has shown us that the importance of Christ's birth demands this response of faith-filled praise, exalting in God's providential ordering of human history for this one thing, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. 
And now, having considered the importance of Jesus' birth, we will consider the second part of Luke's account of Christ's birth. Here in verses 6 and 7, the drama of Christ's birth. The drama of Christ's birth. So with Joseph and Mary's travel itinerary described, their journey complete in verse 5, the scene changes in verse 6. The spotlight goes across the, has, has gone across the stage as, as they've made their journey. And now we read this. While, there, while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her, that is Mary, to do what? To give birth. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now every mother knows something of the drama of childbirth. Nine long months of discomfort, excitement, nervousness, Preparation, hopes, even fears, they come to a climax in the unpredictable day of delivery when you will hold your child in your arms, wrap him in swaddling cloths, and begin to nurse him at your breast. Though no doctor can with 100% accuracy tell you when the days are completed for a particular woman to give birth to her child, Every mother knows the feeling that comes over her when this is it, when this baby's coming. We don't know how long Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem before the days were completed for her to give birth. But we do know something of the drama and humble circumstances of Christ's birth. As we consider then the drama of Christ's birth in verses 6 and 7, we will first examine what Luke tells us about the person of Christ at his birth, And then we will consider the humble circumstances of Christ's coming, his person and his humility or humbleness. Having brought us to the climax of the story, Mary's delivery of Jesus here at the end of verse 6, Luke brings a measure of resolution then in verse 7. Very simply, and she gave birth. The baby was born. The delivery was successful. The infant is in arms. But who was this infant child? Luke begins to tell us about the person of Christ at his birth by emphasizing a particular detail about Jesus. Look what it says in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Jesus Christ is Mary's firstborn. The detail of birth order is here important for understanding who Christ is. In the first place... Jewish families living under the Old Testament ceremonial law, they were commanded to do something with their firstborn son. They were commanded to set him aside to the Lord in a special way. Exodus 13, which details this rite of consecration, begins this way. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify or consecrate to me, set aside to me every firstborn. The first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. Luke provides eyewitness testimony here of Joseph and Mary faithfully obeying this statute in Luke 2, 22 to 24. If you look ahead a little bit with me, they've come to the temple and we read this. And when the days of their purification, this is verse 22 in chapter 2. In the days, and when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There are, uh, there's a, a schedule of sacrifices depending upon your wealth, and the poorest in the land were to offer up two turtle doves or pigeons. So we see something of their economic status. But more significant than that is their faithful obedience to the ceremonial law of Jehovah, of Yahweh. From his birth, yes, from even before his birth, Jesus Christ was being set aside and was set aside for special service to the Lord as one born under the law. At this point, we see the first mark of his humble condition in this world. Not only is he, unique, is he uniquely set aside as firstborn, but the fact that that happened, that he was put under the law that, that said this was to be the case, shows us something utterly mystifying. God the Son, the Lord of glory, the author of the law, who gave it to Moses in the first place, took to himself a true human nature, and he submitted himself to his own law that he might fulfill it on behalf of sinners as the firstborn of many brethren. What glory is this? But the Greek word order here may be emphasizing something else about Christ's firstborn status, that it's extending even beyond the family of Joseph and Mary. The 16th century German Protestant reformer Martin Bucer of Strasbourg, a colleague of John Calvin's, has highlighted the fact that the Greek phrasing here might be rendered, and she gave birth to her son, the firstborn. Yes, Jesus Christ was and ever shall be in history the firstborn from Mary's virgin womb. That is beyond doubt. But we know him also to be the firstborn over all creation who veiled his glory in human vesture in frail and creaturely flesh to show compassion to sinful humanity and bringing dead sinners back to life. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and, and 15 uh, wrote, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then he continues in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 8, in another very familiar passage here. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the law of God. Yes, as Paul points out here, to the point of death, even death on a cross, the purpose for which he came into the world. In Christ's birth as Mary's firstborn, we behold his humiliation as the firstborn of all creation takes to himself a fully human nature, yet without sin. At the same time, could Luke be, in fact, reminding us here of his exalted per, for person as firstborn of all creation. Putting that in there that way 
She gave birth to her son, the firstborn. Whatever the case may be, based on the Greek word order, the tender details of verse 7 certainly emphasize something in particular about this firstborn child, his humility, the humiliation of his condition. Now, the word humiliation is being used here in this sermon. It's used in our catechism uh, in a technical sense. When we think of humiliation, we're thinking about being mortified, being embarrassed in front of somebody, right? If, if, I was to, if I was to go out here and humiliate somebody, it would be mocking them or making fun of them. Though that happens in Christ's life, that isn't what I mean here by humiliation. I mean something bigger than that. By humiliation, what I mean is that he condescended. He set himself into a lower place than he really deserved. Do you see what I'm saying? And the focus of the action in verse 7 then is on Mary's maternal care for Jesus. Jesus has become a baby. He needs to be cared for by a little teenage girl. Mary gave birth. Mary wrapped him in cloths. Mary laid him in a manger. In other words, the incarnate Son of God is being cared for by his mother. Luke gives us very little detail beyond these seemingly mundane facts of Mary's tending to her baby's needs. For instance, there's a lot of speculation at this point as to the exact scene of Christ's birth. Were they in a cave? Or were they in a man-made stable? Or were they in the common room at the inn? We don't know. Were there farm animals present or not? We don't know. Did baby Jesus cry or was he mystically silent and still in his mother's arms that night? Luke answers none of these questions for us. And though thinking about them, um, thinking about the possibilities, trying to fill in those gaps, the color in the pages, though doing that might capture our imaginations in this tender scene of a mother's love for her child, such details are not necessary or even important for us to grasp what the Holy Spirit, through Luke, is trying to tell us, what he's making known to us here. In fact, thinking about those things might be a distraction to us from what's really important. They're not germane to Luke's point, to the Holy Spirit's point. We've already begun to consider Christ's person as Mary's firstborn, the, the fa- in fact, the firstborn of all creation. And the remainder of the verse then shows us how Christ, the Son of God, became man. So Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and being born of her yet without sin. Like every other baby ever to be born of woman, Jesus Christ was swaddled and laid down to sleep. However, unlike us, his birth was anticipated by prophets, announced by angels. He was delivered from a virgin's womb without the taint of sin, which each of us has inherited from Father Adam. To put this very simply, Jesus Christ was born a real baby boy and a really special baby boy. That's the first takeaway of the drama of Christ's birth. The second, and frankly, the more stunning takeaway is this, Christ's humiliation, which I've already detailed and defined for you. To put this very simply, Jesus Christ was born in humble circumstances. 
When God became man, he was not laid down in a crib of gold or ivory. His head was not cushioned by a lush, down-feather pillow. He was, wrapped, he was not wrapped in sheets of Egyptian cotton. He was not waited upon by a bustling team of servants in a royal palace of earthly splendor. No, his mother, betrothed to a relatively poor carpenter living in a backwater Roman province, herself laid him down in a feeding trough. A manger. While Mary's maternal care for her baby should call to mind for us God's tender compassion for his own people, the reality of Christ's humiliation is utterly unexpected. In fact, it's scandalous in the eyes of the world, and yet absolutely necessary for your and my salvation. What is Christ's humiliation here? Well, it's pictured for us in verse 7, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a helpful definition, keeping in mind what I said before. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So as humble as being laid down in a feeding trough may be, That was merely the beginning. That's the tip of the iceberg of Christ's life of humiliation, which culminates in crucifixion, hanging on a tree, as it were, death, and then burial in a cave that he didn't even own. What we merited by our sin to be outcast, to be humiliated, to be alienated from God and from eternal life, Christ voluntarily took all that to himself in his humiliation. Now, why did he do this? John three sixteen and 17 gives us the textbook answer, which I hope all of you have committed to memory. In fact, I'm sure you have. For God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way, in this manner. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Christ did this because the Father loves sinners. The Father loves those who were born with a sin nature. We needed Christ to do this. We needed it. There was no other way. God the Son became man so that men could then become the sons of God, could enjoy that fellowship. The perfect and righteous Son of God became an outcast in the world to reverse mankind's curse of exile due to Adam's sin. And even as we consider Christ's birth, our minds ought to be drawn immediately to his humiliating death and all that he accomplished by it. In Romans 5, verses 6 to 11, I was reminded of this this week. Um, observing a counseling session. And the man uh, told the counselor how it was he was converted. It was from reading Romans chapter 5. In these verses in particular, Paul explains why Christ comes into the world. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And thus Paul drives home for us what Luke teaches us in 2, verses 1 through 7, that the importance and the drama of Jesus Christ's birth demand a response of exaltation, of faith-filled praise. As redeemed men and women, do you exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ? There's no other way to exult in him. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. If you truly recognize the importance and the drama of Christ's birth in these verses, these familiar verses, you will, with Paul, respond with faith-filled praise. Now, returning to my opening illustration, you may remember that a Charlie Brown Christmas has at its climax perhaps the most famous recitation of Scripture in American television history. Linus stands up on stage, clutching his security blanket with the spotlight shining down on him, And he begins to recite Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. What you may not know about this scene is that the executives at CBS just didn't get it. They didn't understand why Charles Schultz wanted to include this scene at all. And they're thinking it didn't fit with the rest of the special. In fact, they feared that it would alienate audiences and cause the whole program to flop. They thought that including a passage of scripture in 1965 in this special would not just sabotage the program itself, but destroy the Peanuts franchise as a whole. They expressed all this to Charles Schultz. None of that mattered to him. They went back to the cartoonist and they asked him, why do you want to do this? And his response? Well, he retorted with a question of his own for them. If we don't do it, who will? If we don't do it, who will? In the end, as you know, they ran that climactic scene. And every year since 1965, that program has aired on broadcast networks to millions of viewers. I rewatched that scene this week, and I picked up on a detail that had escaped my notice in the past. When Linus gets to verse 10, and he recites the words of the angel, Fear not. For I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. He drops his security blanket on the stage. Have you noticed that if you've watched the program? It got me thinking. There are many things, especially in a difficult year like this one, uh, which you and I clutch as security blankets in this present evil age. Our material wealth, our physical health, Our relationships, our homes, our possessions, our ambitions. And on their own, these things may not be bad. No, not at all. In fact, they may be expressions of God's goodness toward us. As we enjoy our families, as we find physical nourishment, as we press on toward goals that glorify God in their fulfillment, but which would be impossible without health or wealth or wisdom. However, when we clutch these things for security in this world we will be disappointed. We will fall short of the kingdom of God, as Jesus makes clear to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. 
for true security and the right of citizenship in the kingdom of God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He who underwent the humiliation of humanity to save sinners. And as Christ promises his disciples in Luke 18, after confronting that, why, that rich young ruler, he says to his disciples in Luke 18, 29 and 30, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. We've considered this morning how the importance and drama of Jesus Christ's birth demand a response of faith-filled praise. God has orchestrated all of human history and the progress of the most powerful nations of the world to set the stage for the kingdom of God headed by Christ Jesus. In Christ, all the hopes and fears of Israel were fulfilled. And we Gentiles have been called into that glorious kingdom too. The sheer significance of Christ's coming demands a response of faith-filled praise. And with the angels, you must declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Salvation has come to you in Christ and the demand is pressed upon you then. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And yet not only the importance, but also the drama of Christ's birth demands a response from you as we've seen today. The humility of his birth calls you to forsake your inborn hard-heartedness and sin nature and to consider all that Christ has accomplished in his birth, his life, and his death. Indeed, he suffered much so that your suffering in this present world would be temporary. He likewise modeled for you the example of a humble suffering servant worthy of a master's honor. In fact, worthy of the honor of a place at the Father's table as a child of God. By his deeds of righteousness, he made a way for you to enjoy all the privileges of being sons of God, of feasting even from the tree of life at the wedding supper of the Lamb. If only you would receive and rest upon him for salvation. What a glorious Savior. What a wonderful king, this baby born in Bethlehem. For he was sent from the Father, and for his love, the only wise God, deserving of all praise. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.